0: fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 29 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today, my friend. I am very happy to have you with us on our Wildlands Expedition. I hope everyone brought their tailored suits a dress shirt, or some other classy bit of apparel with them today. This week, the expedition is traveling to London and joining up with the foreign intelligence service known as MI6. Our canine companions, Dee and Dexter, are both decked out in their little puppy suits and their itty-bitty puppy bow ties, and they are ready to save the civilized world one covert mission at a time. <laughs> Can you imagine us dressing up the dogs in suit and ties? They would hate me forever if my wife and I did that. Hell, they probably hate us now since we make them both wear winter coats outside around here. And my wife really, really wants to get them little winter boots. And I can't help but think how cute those would be, not gonna lie. Oh, jeez, just imagine. Your cute little ties and your cute little boots. i <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm one of those people that doesn't have a problem putting clothes on my dogs. But let's dial it back a bit, we've got a show to do. On today's episode, we're going on a mission with a video game that many gamers probably grew up with while some are just discovering it for the first time today. It was a game where you got to play as the world's most suave and sophisticated secret agent. Back in the late 1990s, there wasn't much to be had in the first-person shooter market. There were still some great games out there, though. Wolfenstein 3D was released in 1992, which had you playing as B.J. Blazkowicz, an American spy who was captured by German Nazis during World War II. In that game, your mission was a simple one, escape from Castle Wolfenstein and kill anyone and everyone who gets in your way. This was a game I had poured countless hours into as a kid, and one that will be getting some love on the show at some point. In 1993, Quake was unleashed on the world. Quake is a game that I tend to see described as Lovecraftian, and it has players moving through levels battling monsters in mostly medieval settings. And we cannot forget about one of the most popular first-person shooters ever. You know which one I'm thinking of the game that can be literally run on anything nowadays, from the digital display on your refrigerator, a printer, a pregnancy test, and on a TI-84 calculator that has been powered by 100 pounds of potatoes. Yes, you guessed it, I am talking about Doom. In Doom, you play a character the world has dubbed Doom Guy, who fights to defeat countless monsters and demons that have overtaken a base that he is on on the planet Mars. As Doomguy, it's up to us to rid the base of every possible threat, usually by utilizing the business end of a shotgun or some other multi-purpose killing instrument. But it wouldn't be until 1997 that we would get something that would challenge the status quo up to that point. Developer Rare would change the game when it unleashed GoldenEye 007 onto the Nintendo 64. And while it's easy to look at GoldenEye as just a first-person shooter, there is much more to this game than meets the eye. What if I told you that killing everything really wasn't how you win the game, and that efficiency and speed are more powerful than the biggest BFG you can find, and that playing as a short character in the multiplayer instantly makes you the shittiest person in the room? These are the reasons GoldenEye will always have a place as one of the best games on the Nintendo 64 and one of the best shooters of all time. Now, growing up, I did not have a Nintendo 64. I've probably mentioned this before on one of our past episodes. A few friends of mine had it, and I was lucky enough to play during a visit or a sleepover here and there, but ultimately, I never got those memories that so many of you have. And when it comes to GoldenEye, I have vague memories of playing through the first level and maybe the second level during the game's main story, but alas, I never got to fully experience this game, which also means I never got to play split-screen multiplayer with my friends. I have no memories of intense death matches, crazy battle combinations, and luckily, I never got to feel the frustration of playing against someone who was using Oddjob as their character. But on January 27th, 2023, I would be given the chance to put 007 on my gaming resume and right some of the wrongs of my youth. Goldeneye was released on Game Pass for the Xbox as well as made available to Nintendo Online users so they could download the game to their Switch. Even though the Switch has the ability to allow players to play online together, I opted to get the game for my Xbox One. While playing multiplayer online sounded fun, I was more interested in the single-player experience. And I like achievements, so that also helped my decision-making process. From what I've read, this game really wasn't remastered in any way, and it had no real changes made to it. I do know the Xbox version got a graphical upgrade so the graphics look a little bit more high-res, but really, this game is the game that was released on the Nintendo 64. And that is fine by me. I'm eager to regale you all with my thoughts and experiences with GoldenEye today. I've had a blast playing through this game for the first time, and I'm loving the time I'm spending with it. Well, for the most part, anyway. And even though I don't have any personal multiplayer stories to share about this game, there's a few of you out in the community who were awesome enough to share some of your own with me, so I'm looking forward to sharing some of those with everyone listening as well. So stick around, Wildlanders, we are in for a wild ride with this one. Now before we get to the GoldenEye conversation, I like to take some time during our intro to give everyone listening a peek behind the scenes here in the retro Wildlands. This is where I like to just chat you all up for a while and let you know what projects I'm working on for the podcast, what games I might be playing, how the show itself is doing, or really whatever the hell else I feel like rambling about. I encourage you all to stick around, but if that does not sound appealing to you at all, no worries. You can skip ahead about five to seven minutes, and you should make your way to the GoldenEye Talk. I also have timestamps loaded in the show description so you can get right to where you need to go if that is something that interests you. Alright, for those of you new to the show, or those of you who haven't checked out last week's episode, I tried something different. I decided late in my usual episode recording cycle that I wanted to cover GoldenEye since it had just dropped on the Xbox and Switch on the 27th. I went ahead and announced it on social media that weekend and then I started to play it. I was pleasantly surprised to find out that this game had many more layers and nuances to it than I originally thought. But the problem there was that I would need more time to really put my thoughts to paper. Now, I try to have the show recorded fully by the end of the day Tuesday. I edit it all together with music and sound on Wednesday for a release Thursday mornings. I figured out quickly that I wasn't going to meet the deadline with everything else I had going on this past week, and I started to panic a little bit. That's when I decided to deploy an idea that I've been kicking around for a little while. I personally love topical discussions and I love a good top 10 list. I mean, who doesn't, right? One of my biggest worries is taking on a game that requires more time than I'm able to commit to an episode and miss posting an episode on that Thursday. I think there were two episodes that I've posted on a Friday so far, and then there was one that I completely pushed out a whole week because of how much I decided to take on, and I wanted to make sure the project itself, when I put it together, was something that I was proud of. But this last week, I didn't want to do that. I want to stay consistent, especially because when I do post an episode, I see a huge jump in downloads, which means that there are some of you out there who follow the podcast and download it the day that I uploaded. That is awesome to me, but it also stresses me out a little bit because I don't want to let you all down. The fact that you take time out of your lives for my show is incredibly humbling, so when I knew I wasn't going to make the GoldenEye deadline, I knew I had to pivot. So I decided to try out a Top 10 style show last week in the form of my Top 10 Weapons and Gadgets in GoldenEye. The goal was to make the episode shorter and much more focused. It was actually pretty quick to put together too, which freed me up in other areas while still being able to put together something for your ear holes that I was proud of. So, with all that being said, I think I'm going to move forward with tossing in a random list or topical podcast that's shorter than these bigger episodes from time to time. I'm hoping it will mix things up for a little bit and afford me the time I need to properly play and analyze the games that I want to talk about. I'm not really sure if I'm going to do these every other episode, once a month, or just when I need them, but we'll have to see. I have some ideas slated like my top 10 guilty pleasure games, my top 10 favorite side quests, top 10 worst games I've ever played, and so on. I am curious your thoughts, though. I know I've only done one of these types of episodes, and it's possible not everyone really gives a shit about GoldenEye and the ranking of the weapons, but I would like to know if this idea is something that you might like or something that just sounds completely awful to you. Or maybe you have an idea for an episode like this. It would really mean a lot to me if you reached out to me and let me know. How do you get a hold of me, you might be wondering? Well, the best way would be through our social media pages, which is a great segue to talk about those. Right now, the best way to get a hold of me and also the best way to follow along with the show would be over on our social media platforms. We have a presence over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. All you have to do is just search at Retro Wildlands and you should find us. You can reach out to me directly by slipping and sliding into my DMs, or you can interact with any of our posts. Certainly feel free to chime in on some of our posts or let me know your thoughts on these new episode ideas. And while I'm thinking about it, if you end up liking the podcast, please consider leaving us a good review on your podcast platform of choice if it lets you. Good reviews are going to help circulate the podcast around, and I'll be honest, good reviews just make me feel good. I'll also read your review on the show and personally thank you, so if that's something that you'd find appealing, please consider helping us out if you like what we're doing here. Alright, what else we got going on here? Other than playing through Goldeneye, I'm still slowly making my way through Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII Reunion. I'm more than halfway through this game, but slowed down playing it just because I'm putting my time into things for the podcast. So far, though, I am really liking it. Although, I will say, and I'm curious how you all think, the new voice actor for Zack, Caleb Pierce, is not really doing it for me. While I think Caleb is a great voice actor, and I have nothing but respect for the craft and the time voice actors put into their roles to perfect them, Caleb Pierce is just missing something. Rick Gomez, who voiced Zack in the original PSP version of the game, did really well especially when voice acting scenes that were very emotional or full of tension. When the story stakes were high, Rick Gomez really made Zach shine as a character, and I connected with him on a personal level. In my opinion, Caleb lacks some of that oomph needed to make some of the more emotional scenes impactful for me. It's not to say I don't like him as the voice of Zach, I think he's doing just fine, it's just hard to forget how awesome Rick Gomez's previous performance was. So beyond that, Crisis Core Reunion is great, and I'm still happy that this game is available for people to play who may have missed out on it originally. I'm hoping to platinum this game, and eventually I'd like to do a podcast episode on this game, highlighting some of the changes this version has over the old. So, one day down the road. If you yourself have any thoughts about this game, feel free to reach out to me on social media, I'd love to hear what you think. Speaking of Final Fantasy games, I decided to pre-order... Theater Rhythm Final Bar Line on the Nintendo Switch. It's a rhythm action game packed with 385 or so music tracks from all across the whole Final Fantasy series. I played a version of Theater Rhythm on my 3DS and really got into it, so I decided to download the Final Bar Line demo that dropped for the new release. I'm not going to spend any time harping on my first impressions just yet, but I did want to say, if you love Final Fantasy, if you love RPGs, or if you love Final Fantasy music, I think you might get a kick out of this game. While I've not played through all of the games in the Final Fantasy universe, I love the music and this game is just fun to me so far. So if you've got some time, check out the demo. It's free, It should be available on the Switch, and I believe it's available on the PlayStation 4 as well. I really think you guys might like this one if Final Fantasy's your thing. Other than that, I don't think I have much else to talk about this week. So with that, it's about time to get to the reason that you're all here today. It's time to talk about Goldeneye 007 for the Nintendo 64. Squidge from the Waffling Tailors podcast reached out to the show on Twitter about Goldeneye and said, Once you replay or even think about Goldeneye after all this time, why is it that the soundtrack sits in your head for a cup of coffee and doesn't leave for three weeks? Not complaining, the music slaps, and the gameplay is awesome as well. You're spot on with that, Squidge, and for me, not really ever playing this game, the soundtrack was still immediately recognizable, even today. The soundtrack for GoldenEye certainly lives rent-free in my head. It even cleans up after itself, so it has been a pretty model tenant. Thank you for writing in, Squidge. I hope you and Jay are doing well over there. Curtis over on our Facebook page chimed in as well and said, I wanted so badly to be able to play this game, but the graphics engine hit me with motion sickness every time. It's hard to gun down your opponents when you're on the edge of vomiting after 10 minutes. Curtis, my man, that sounds absolutely awful when you word it like that, but I think I can see where you're coming from, though. There is a lot of movement to be had, and walking around normally has the camera swaying just enough back and forth where I can see that being an issue for some people. All first-person shooters do for me is make me really tired over a shorter period of time, but I can't imagine what it does to you but I'm hoping the episode of the show does do the game some justice and you can experience Goldeneye vicariously through me. I appreciate the comment this week, Curtis. Thank you for reaching out. Chris also reached out on our Facebook page, and while he didn't leave a comment about the game per se, he did offer me up a PDF of a book containing some pretty robust development history regarding Goldeneye from Boss Fight Books. I don't normally touch on the development history of any game that I cover here in the Wildlands, but. I did pull a couple things out of that development information that I thought you might all enjoy. So thank you a bunch, Chris. It has been a joy to read through this history so far, and I'm looking forward to finishing it up. And finally, the Carmine Davis Show reached out over on our Instagram and just left three fire emojis, which I will interpret to mean that Goldeneye007 is straight fire. Which, my friend, I agree. This game may be over 25 years old and contains some eh, fairly rough edges here and there, but I do think this game is worth playing today. And we're going to get into why I think that right now. Thank you very much for reaching out, by the way, too, Carmine. Originally released on August 25th, 1997 in North America, GoldenEye is a game that has far more layers and nuances than I ever originally thought. It's a first-person shooter that takes the existing formula of shoot everything on sight and make your way to the exit and do something different with it. The developers didn't want you to just be some unnamed person with a gun. They wanted to make the player feel what it's like for James Bond to be inserted deep behind enemy lines surrounded by constant threat, but also replicate that feeling that comes with squeaking out alive relying on your weapons training, your cunning, and maybe a unique gadget from time to time. So do we have what it takes to save the world as one of the most notorious secret agents around? I say we find out. Grab your silenced PP7 handgun, strap on your MI6 issued watch, and straighten that tie. It's going to be up to us to save the world from an orbital threat that everyday ordinary people don't even know exists. All the video games out there, past and present, every now and then there's a game that can be only described as essential and influential. GoldenEye 007 is one of those video games as it really helped define and refine the first person shooter genre, and I'd like to think veteran gamers would agree with that statement. Now, if you would have told me that GoldenEye was an essential experience and one of the most influential video games of all time more than a couple weeks ago, I probably would have told you that you were full of shit. I've probably mentioned it a few times up to this point already, but I never played GoldenEye growing up. Worse than that, I never owned it Nintendo 64 growing up. And while I did play the first couple single player levels thanks to some cool childhood friends of mine, whose names are escaping me right now, all I knew about Goldeneye was the robust multiplayer experience. But even then, that was something I never had a chance to partake in. I would hear so many stories over the last 25 years or so of how awesome playing a round of multiplayer was, especially if you used some of the sweet-ass cheats that you could unlock. There were things like paintball mode, big head mode, slappers only, times two throwing knives, and game modes like the man with the golden gun, license to kill, and more. It all sounded incredible, but alas, it was not meant for me. With no Nintendo 64, no copy of GoldenEye, and no friends or siblings to play this game with, I moved beyond GoldenEye and just accepted the fact that I will never play this game. Everyone else can have the cool memories with it. I'll just live vicariously through you all. It's fine. No big deal. That was until January 27th, 2023, when GoldenEye was re-released on the Xbox through Game Pass and on the Nintendo Switch through Nintendo Online. Once I got this awesome news, I hopped onto my Xbox One and without much thought at all, I downloaded it. As I booted the game up, I was met with a screen that was all too familiar. Even though I never really played this game when I was little, it's one of those opening screens that's just embedded in your mind. On screen, that gold rareware logo started spinning and the music started. The logo didn't even finish with a full rotation by the time I felt a smile slowly creep onto my face. When you hear this opening tune once, you never forget it. It's funny, even though I never played this game really, I'll never forget this opening segment. And then, after a few moments, the music fades, and we're treated with a video game version of James Bond strutting on screen as viewed through the eyes of a gun barrel. And with that classic turn and pivot, Bond fires his own weapon, and the would-be assassin falls, becoming one of the many bad guys who will fail to kill MI6's best secret agent. From here, the game shows us all the major players. 007, of course, is present and accounted for. Bond girl Natalia Simonova. Ooh, I think I got that right. Yeah! Agent 006 Alex Trevelyan is also present and accounted for, and many more. Seeing this scene again got me hyped for the action to come. But as I saw some of the cast pop up on screen, I started to realize something. I had never actually seen the movie GoldenEye before. So I thought it would be pretty cool to prepare myself for the game by watching the movie first. I mean, why not? I am also ashamed to admit it, but I barely have any of the James Bond movies under my belt, so it was a great excuse to actually watch one. I was able to catch GoldenEye on HBO Max, and I have to say, I was pretty impressed with it. While I am not a James Bond expert by any stretch, I have always thought Pierce Brosnan brought a healthy mix of seriousness and lightheartedness to the role, and I think he did a great job in GoldenEye. And now that I had seen the movie, I was curious to find out exactly how close this game would be to the actual film itself. But at the very least, now I understood who all the characters were. So with a game as iconic as Goldeneye, where do we even start? While Goldeneye is probably most known for its split-screen multiplayer shenanigans, there is quite a bit under the hood here. There's 20 single-player missions with varying objectives depending on your difficulty setting, 11 different multiplayer levels to play around in, 20 or so weapons and gadgets to come across, a banger of a soundtrack complimenting it all, and let's not forget the visual presentation. There's even a pretty interesting development history behind it all. I might be betraying my own feelings for this game, but I was pleasantly surprised overall with all the layers I kept uncovering when it came to the game's content and gameplay. So with all that said, I think we'll start with a story setup, maybe touch on a few things I learned regarding the game's development, play a level in order to get an idea of the gameplay flow, toss a bit out about the presentation and how well that's held up somewhere in there, and finish up by talking about the multiplayer. I've got a few comments about the multiplayer from the community that I am very eager to share, so definitely stick around for those. Okay, let's get started. So, what is this game? Goldeneye 007 is a first-person shooter where we take control of James Bond, MI6 secret agent extraordinaire. Bond has been depicted in books and film as a suave, capable man who can accomplish any mission thrown his way. He loves a good drink and a good woman, and always accomplishes the mission. The story set up in the video game is pretty on par with the movie itself. However, the video game did take some liberties with the story in order to allow us as a player a reason to constantly be shooting at something. But the basic story setup goes like this. In 1986, MI6 has uncovered a secret chemical weapons facility located at the base of a dam in the Soviet Union. Bond is to infiltrate the facility, sabotage it with explosives, and escape. Bond won't be working alone on this one, however. Agent 006, Alex Trevelyan, will be on site as well to assist with the mission. True to the movie, we as the players start off by making our way to the dam and bungee jumping off of it in order to use one of our mini gadgets to land safely at the bottom and infiltrate the facility through an exhaust port. Once inside, we need to rendezvous with Agent 006. We also need to locate the chemical weapons tanks make them go boom, escape, and then celebrate with our martini of choice and some good company. At least that's the plan. Now, I did say this was a first-person shooter, but this is not your daddy's first-person shooter. Running around like an idiot shooting people in the face with reckless abandon is just going to make the mission that much harder to accomplish. While there will be plenty of opportunities to get your gun off, as it were, Really, what we need to accomplish our mission is swift efficiency. And I don't say this because it makes sense in the confines of the James Bond universe. This game absolutely rewards and almost demands this approach. Many first-person shooters, even ones today, put an emphasis on the idea that you can just blow the shit out of any enemy or obstacle in your way, make your way to the end of the level, and that's it. That's all the strategy you need. That is not always the case in Goldeneye. Rushing around a level spraying bullets everywhere is a very quick way to complicate your mission. Not only can it cause more enemies to converge on your location, some mission objectives might actually get harder to accomplish, especially if the mission relies on something in the environment that you need to interact with. Now, the cool thing about Goldeneye is that a good portion of things in the environment are destructible but sometimes that might include something that you need to interact with, like, say, a computer terminal. If you end up blowing that up, you might as well start over because you couldn't control yourself and now you can't accomplish the mission. So that said, the key is to be quick and efficient. I think the phrase, slow is steady, steady is fast, applies very well to Goldeneye most of the time. Now, a lot of this goes out the window when you're trying to murder your friends on multiplayer, of course, but we'll get into that in good time. Before we get into the game itself, I thought it would be interesting to touch on some of the development history around GoldenEye. I don't normally spend a lot of time in this area when it comes to speaking about a game's development or anything like that, but GoldenEye's journey was an interesting one. It was pretty cool to me learning how this game became what it is, but more so, what this game was originally supposed to be. Now, the Nintendo 64 was a pretty good console and its library of games are largely to thank here. A majority of the best games were Nintendo-developed ones. However, the third best-selling game on the entire platform was GoldenEye, which was developed by Rare. Rare is a pretty well-known developer in the gaming sphere. They're responsible for games like Donkey Kong Country for the Super Nintendo, Banjo-Kazooie for the N64, Conker's Bad Fur Day, and even some older titles on the original Nintendo like RC Pro-Am and Battletoads. Rare quickly became a second-party developer for Nintendo, and they would often enjoy the privileges of a blank check when it came to funding. When Nintendo and Rare got together to talk about the making of the game based on the film Goldeneye, it was originally slated to be a side-scrolling 2D platformer for the Super Nintendo. At the time, Donkey Kong Country was a graphical wonder, and it was thought that they would mimic that style in a new James Bond game. However, project director Martin Hollis wanted to go a different direction with this game. The side-scrolling platformer was already a tried-and-true game style, and with GoldenEye being a licensed property, it already had the odds of success stacked against it. Licensed games, especially back in the day, didn't have the best of reputations. They were commonly looked at as cheaply made cash grabs. I'm looking at you, Super Nintendo games, Shaq-Fu, Home Alone, and Home Improvement, Power Tool Pursuit. Yeah, you heard that right. That last game actually exists, and it is as awful as it sounds. But anyway, Hollis suggested that GoldenEye be more of a 3D shooting game. With the Nintendo 64 on the horizon, it only made sense to make the jump to the new platform. Hollis himself had some great ideas that he brought to the table. James Bond wasn't just known for using weapons. There were the gadgets, there were the memorable characters, Hollis had a plan to highlight all of that and more. Once Hollis and the team got to work, they used games like Virtua Cop and Doom as influences. Both of these games were popular first-person shooters at the time, but the team also took inspiration from Super Mario 64, Mario's first outing in the 3D space. Virtua Cop provided the inspiration for game mechanics like position-dependent hit reaction animations, the manual aiming system, penalties for killing civilians, and, believe it or not, reloading your weapon in real time. Oh, and speaking of reloading, the developers had this really interesting idea where they wanted the player to be able to reload their weapons by unplugging and reinserting the N64 controller's rumble pack. Nintendo squashed that idea pretty quickly, though, but I will say, the concept sounds pretty awesome, even if it would have been a pain in the ass for the player. I mean, can you imagine how often you would have to do that if you decided to use that 20-round clob? Uh, That would have been awful. I mean, if you know, you know. As far as any other inspirations go, the only other one that really stands out to me is the concept of multiple mission objectives. That was something that they lifted straight from Super Mario 64. Now, if you think the idea that this game was almost a side-scrolling platformer is pretty interesting, I also read that the developers were considering making this game more of an on rail shooter, meaning the player would not control where they go, and they were at the mercy of a predetermined path that they would automatically go down. They originally thought of doing this and mixing in some of the more free-roaming aspects that we have now. The reason for this was, at some point in development, they didn't quite know how the N64 would work with the control scheme that they had in mind, and they were worried that it was going to be too complicated for the player. Before they decided to scrap the on-rails idea, some levels were already built with the on-rail mechanic in mind. One example is the facility level, which is the second stage of the game. Now, I am no game designer, so I might be wrong on this, but... When the developers were making the game levels, they seemed to make them kind of ass-backwards. The designers initially focused on making the levels as interesting and eye-catching as possible. They put in the background elements and everything else they needed to make the area uh, visually appealing. Then, when that was done, they decided to figure out where the levels would begin and end, where the characters would be set up, what enemies would be in which level and where they would be, and what objectives would be on each level. Hollis felt as though this approach gave the levels a more realistic feel. When playing Goldeneye, have you ever come across a room or an area that just seems to serve no purpose? That is a byproduct of this design choice because, just like in real life, not every room or location really has a purpose that ties into whatever it is that you're doing at the time. I would assume that level design would actually be the other way around, but really, when I think about it this way, it's kinda neat. There's a crap ton more on GoldenEye's development that I found absolutely fascinating, but I don't really tend to go that deep into the development side of games on the podcast. There are plenty of other podcasters out there and content creators that have done and will do a better job than me in this department, so I encourage you to search them out if you'd like to know more about GoldenEye's development history. All in all, my takeaway was always that the developers were not interested in making just another gaming staple, and they certainly did not want to fall into the stigma of the time that was the licensed video game. Even after deciding to scrap the idea of a side-scrolling platformer, they didn't want to just settle on the typical first-person shooter formula. They decided to continue on with their overarching mission, which is make the player feel like James Bond. And it's a decision that I think really paid off in the end. So that's a very short taste of the development history. Let's shift gears and get into the game itself. Let's talk about the presentation first. So, GoldenEye came out over 25 years ago on the Nintendo 64. And while the graphics were probably amazing for the time, they did not age particularly well. Now, don't get me wrong, I think the graphics overall are just fine. I think they're pretty spectacular in some spots, actually. It also helped my experience that I was playing on the Xbox One version where the graphics got a nice facelift. But that also meant I got to see some of the, uh, harder edges, as it were. Level design and appearance are pretty on par for the time. While levels will have things like boxes, watchtowers, vehicles, and things like that in them, they can be pretty barren, all things considered. Especially any outdoor sort of location. Levels like the dam, the open snowfields of Surface, and the streets of St. Petersburg are very wide open and pretty void of detail. However, most indoor locations look pretty good, and there's a decent amount of objects in the environment that add to the overall atmosphere and just the overall feel of that location. I think the game's second level, The Facility, is one of my favorites because of this. There are computer terminals set up, tables with lab equipment on them, bulletins stuck on walls, you know, things like that. The levels may be full to the brim with polygonal shapes, but I like them, I really do. Now the characters, I have to say, are pretty comical by today's standards. A lot of them animate well enough, but they can be pretty blocky looking. But what stands out more than anything are their faces. I read that the faces were actual photographs of people that were wrapped onto the character models. The people whose faces that we see are pretty much anyone the development staff could find. They were the game designers themselves, miscellaneous IT people, janitors, even kids. Here's one that you veteran GoldenEye players might recognize. Remember in the facility level where you have to find the double-agent scientist that gives you the door decoder to access the nerve gas containers that you need to blow up? That face model is of David Doak, one of the game's designers. Bond actually addresses this character as Dr. Doke in dialogue. But while Doke's face looks pretty good, all things considered, most of the other characters' faces are... well, they look fucking ridiculous, if I'm being honest. And while I think they probably don't look all that bad on the Nintendo 64 back in the day, on the Xbox, you can absolutely see these characters' faces much more clearly, and they are just awful. Some faces have silly smiles. One face looks like it's actually missing a tooth, I'm pretty sure. And there's even one face where a guy has a mean-looking scar down the one side of his face, and... The funny thing about these faces is that, even though they appear on most enemies, a lot of these faces will get cycled onto the face of some civilians, too. The guy with the scar down his face sometimes appears on one of the faces of one of the scientists that you might come across, and they look about as dumb as you can imagine. But you know what, though? I think it's still all pretty awesome. I'll even go so far as to say that it's kind of charming. Sure, characters can look a little blocky and stiff sometimes, but at this point, it's just part of the overall experience. Main characters like Bond and Alec do look pretty good though, all things considered, so you can tell a lot more time was put on the main characters of the game, but still. Some of these characters just look awful, but I'd love it. Now, while the characters themselves can be a bit hit or miss visually, I think a decent amount of effort went into the weapons. All of them look really good, especially your standard-issue Walther PP-7. I also like that small details were put in. For example, the slides on your weapons will rack back when you fire them, and bullet casings will fly out as you pull the trigger. These are all details that are pretty common now, but back then, they really added to the overall experience, and it was pretty cool to see that much detail. Aside from the visual presentation, GoldenEye's sound design is surprisingly robust. Every weapon you use sounds amazing and very weighty. Bullets ricocheting off walls and objects have that 1980s movie flair to them and just fit into this game so naturally. When I think of this game and recall any memory of it, my mind tends to go to the sounds of a firefight and those ricocheting sounds. Man, doesn't that just take you back? Or how about that iconic reloading sound? It all just sounds so crisp and really brings the game world alive. And to add to all of that is the game's amazing soundtrack. Every level in this game has a track that's uniquely all its own and really captures that James Bond touch. Some levels that require you to be a little stealthier have a nice ambience to them, while other levels where you're blowing up everything in sight are complemented with an upbeat score that never loses that Bond flair. There's a good chance you're going to be replaying several of these levels, and the soundtrack really helps drive you forward. It's just another thing about this game that really makes you feel like Bond himself. So speaking of feeling like 007, I say it's time we fire up the game and get down to business. We'll check out the very first level and get kind of a basery feel of the gameplay mechanics and what you can come to expect. After we fire the game up and make our way past the opening cinematic, we come to the main menu. There are four file folders which essentially act as save slots for your progression. I'm sure this is probably a fantastic feature that worked great for houses with siblings so each of you could have your own progression. In any case, we select a folder, and we're taken to a screen where we can select a mission or jump right into a multiplayer match. We'll be talking about the multiplayer a bit later, but for now, let's hop into a mission. From here, we select which mission that we want to partake in. When we first start, only the Dam level is selectable, but as we go, more levels will open up as we play. After selecting Dam, we need to select a difficulty. Agent is your easy difficulty, Secret Agent is more or less the normal one, and Double-O Agent is your hard mode. Now, I'm fairly positive Double-O Agent only becomes available after beating a mission on Secret Agent, but my goldfish brain can't remember. Basically, easier difficulties have less enemies who die easier and are terrible shots, whereas hard difficulties will see more enemies who are better shots and deal more damage. Ammo pickups are also more robust on easier modes. But the biggest difference between the difficulty modes is the number of objectives that you'll need to complete before you can consider the mission a success. As an example, on Agent difficulty, the only objective on the dam level is that you need to bungee jump off the dam itself. On Secret Agent difficulty, you need to do that, but you also need to disable several alarms around the level. On Double O Agent, you need to do all of that while also installing a covert modem on a satellite panel, and you'll also need to intercept some data from a backup server. Personally, I love this approach, and it does help the replay value of the game quite a bit. For now though, let's select the Secret Agent difficulty. From here, it's on to the Mission Briefing. Your mission objectives are listed here as well as the background on your mission and some commentary from M, the head of MI6, as well as Q, who is the head of research and development. You know, the guy who works on and gives Bond all his cool gadgets and toys. Moneypenny will also throw something in Small at the end as well, so don't forget about her. It's generally a good idea to read through this the very first time you play a mission, as the information given could be helpful in understanding what you need to do and why you have some of the certain tools that you have in your toolkit. Once we're done, it's time to get on mission. We're shown a pretty cool cinematic that shows us an area of the dam, and then the camera swings past a guard tower where we see 007 getting ready to set off. The camera view settles inside Bond's head and it's as if we're settling into his own shoes at this point. Once this is done, we're given control and Bond brings up his silenced PP7 on the right side of the screen. Now I've mentioned already that I've never played much of the original N64 version of GoldenEye, so I'm not going to pretend I know the control scheme on that console. I ended up playing this game on the Xbox. Other than the fact that the N64 only had one analog stick, I'm assuming the controls between the two versions are somewhat similar. So if something I say control-wise doesn't jive with your memories of the game, please do not send me hate mail, thank you. Anyway, using the control stick, we can move Bond backwards and forwards and side to side. It's pretty clear that we have to move to our left and around the corner to move forward in this level, so we do just that. Standing just around the other side of that corner is a Russian soldier. He spots us immediately and prepares to engage us. Well, we're not going to give him a chance, so let's take our shots first. As we move closer, we can see that Bond will start to automatically aim his weapon towards the enemy. When this happens, Bond typically is aiming towards center mass. We pull the right trigger on the controller and fire off a shot. The bullet actually hits the enemy in the left arm, and the enemy uses his right hand to cover up the wound for a minute. Ah, that's pretty neat. I have always appreciated the fact that enemies will react differently depending on where you shoot them. But for as cool as that is, James Bond does not have a license to wound, he has a license to kill. We finish off the guard after a couple more shots. And that's how you do it. The weapon that the guard was holding topples to the ground. If we walk over it, we can actually pick it up. Looks like we now have a KF-7 Soviet assault rifle. That will certainly come in handy, but for now, we'll stick to our silenced handgun. Crossing over a small bridge, we start coming up to a watchtower. To the left, another enemy has spotted us and starts to drop to one knee to take fire on us. We prepare to fire back, but since we're so far away at this point, Bond doesn't automatically aim his weapon. We fire off a few shots, but they sail past the enemy. We can hurry and try to close the distance, but at that point the enemy will definitely have started to fire on us and we could potentially take damage. In order for us to be more accurate, we have to manually aim our weapon. Pressing and holding the left trigger will have a small red crosshair appear on screen. There was no such thing as aiming down sights in this particular first person shooter. With the crosshair on screen, we line it up with the enemy and we fire with much more accuracy. Nice. Now I could be misremembering, but I think in the N64 version, Bond has to remain stationary when he has his targeting reticle out whereas I had free range of movement with the Xbox while I was manually aiming. Either way, manually aiming like this will be a skill that we're going to use often, so we want to get good at doing it very quickly. Moving on, we walk over to the weapon the guard dropped on the ground and we pick that up as well. Rounding the watchtower, we have another goon waiting to take a crack at us. This time, we decide to end the encounter swiftly and more efficiently. We manually aim our crosshair, line it up with this poor saf's face, and pull the trigger. (laughs) Haha, good night. Things seem to be going pretty smooth up to this point until... Up ahead is a long service tunnel with two more guards taking potshots at us. At this distance, even manually aiming will be a bit of a chore. In order to avoid the incoming fire, we opt for a full retreat and we double back into the watchtower. Once we get to the top, we spot a very welcome sight. A silenced sniper rifle is on the top floor just waiting for us to claim it. Without hesitation we do, and we cycle our weapons so that we're holding our new weapon. The sniper rifle has a pretty solid zoom feature. We angle our weapon down the tunnel and bring up our crosshair. The camera automatically zooms in quite a ways, and we zero in on the enemy guards. We line up a headshot on one and pull the trigger. Ah, fuck, we missed. The crosshair is going to sway back and forth, simulating Bond's hand tremors, so we're gonna have to try again. Steady. Ah, there we go. We repeat the process with goon number two and we are in the clear. Nice shooting, Agent. As we move down the tunnel, it's probably a good idea to take a moment and remind ourselves what our mission objectives are. Pressing the start button, Bond will bring up his MI6-issued watch, and we'll be brought to the game's menu interface. We can do several things here. We can check out what items that we have in our inventory, such as weapons and gadgets, and we can equip them directly from the menu if we need to, but we can also check our mission objectives from here. For this particular mission, we need to neutralize all alarms and bungee jump from the platform. Now here's the fun part, or the frustrating part depending on your viewpoint. The game does not give us any sort of waypoint or any sort of on-screen indicator to let us know where our mission objectives are or what the objects look like that we need to interact with or destroy. As we make our way through this mission and all the other missions, we're going to have to figure them all out on our own. Some of them are fairly obvious, some of them are not. Some of them will require you to use a gadget in your inventory that you might not know you have on you until you look at your inventory in the watch menu. If we get to the end of a level without completing all objectives, the level will end, but it will be considered a failure. Now we will get an on-screen prompt when we do accomplish an objective, and we can check the status of each of those individual objectives on our watch, but otherwise we will have no indicator of progress. A great example of this type of objective would be, in the bunker level, you have to go around and disable all security cameras. It doesn't tell you how many security cameras you have to disable, and the only way to keep track of how many you have is by counting on your fingers. I don't think I minded this particular approach with objectives all that much when I was playing, though. Kinda made me feel as though I needed to figure things out on the fly, you know, just like a real secret agent would have to but I would run into instances where I would make it all the way through a level and find that I missed maybe one of those security cameras somewhere and I needed to go all the way back through the level room by room to find the one that I missed. Most of this though does go out the window as you learn the levels and figure things out on your own though, so again, not the worst thing really. It really is what helps make Goldeneye stand out against all the other first person shooters of the time. Anyhow, for the dam level that we're in now, the alarms that we need to destroy look like big red buttons so they're fairly obvious to see. Several bullets to the alarm themselves should do the trick. I think there are four in this level all told if I'm not mistaken. So with that, we close the menu and get back on mission. As we continue through the mission and disable the alarms, Bond will continue to face opposition. In the dam level as a whole, we won't have too much trouble overcoming the enemy and staying on task. Once all the alarms are located and disabled, we're left with jumping off the platform. Eventually we'll come to the dam itself, and in the center of it will be a small staircase that leads to an edge. Now, I don't think I really understood what I needed to do here when I was little, but to bungee jump off this platform, you just need to walk off the edge. And when you do this, it is almost a little terrifying. In first person, you'll see yourself plummet to the bottom of the dam. It's even more harrowing if you look down before you walk off the edge. It goes on for just a little too long and I always wondered if I had just thrown Bond to his death. But once you get to the end, the screen fades to black and then you get to see Bond jump from the platform in third person. It's a scene taken right from the GoldenEye movie, and it looks pretty spectacular for what it is. You see Bond jump from a few angles before the mission officially ends. It's a fantastic opening level, and a great way to really set the mood for the rest of the game. The first level of the game really gives you a good, solid taste of what's on offer here, but the gameplay itself is more complicated than I think I originally realized. I've mentioned it a few times up to this point, but Goldeneye really isn't meant to be played like Wolfenstein or Doom. If you run around firing wildly, you will attract the attention of many more enemies to your position. You see, when you fire your weapon, it will emit a sound. Well, obviously. But the radius that emanates from around you goes out farther depending on the weapon. A gun with a silencer will have a smaller sound radius than an unsilenced machine gun, but this sound radius will actually increase as you fire more shots in quick succession. Here's an example. If I have my PP7 and I take just one shot and stop firing, there is almost no chance enemies in the immediate area will hear it. If I take a moment before firing again, my noise profile will stay at a minimum. If I fire a couple of shots in quicker succession, that radius will start to increase. Silenced weapons will actually be heard by the enemy if you shoot too quickly, so you really just want to pace yourself. This idea also holds true to unsilenced weapons as well. The KF-7 Soviet assault rifle, for instance, does not have a silencer on it, so its initial sound radius is much larger than the silenced PP-7. But if you don't go all Rambo and just take a quick shot here and there, you'll still reduce your overall sound radius and potentially avoid enemies hearing you. All of that to say, the game really pushes you to be efficient with your kills. If you run around the facility level and you're careful to take quick and precise shots, you'll notice a clear difference in the amount of enemies, compared to if you went through the same level and tore everyone up with a KF7 on full auto. I didn't really understand how this worked, though, until I made it to the Frigate level. In this level, I took my time and slowly took down each enemy, and I noticed that the level was really easy, and not very many enemies made my life a living hell. After that level, I started working to be much more efficient and swift, and it helps, believe me. As you play the game, even if you try your best to be the stealthiest agent that you can, You're going to take a bullet or two, and there's not too much you can do about that sometimes. You can check your health on your watch where you can see it to the left-hand side of the screen in an orangish, reddish tone. When you take damage, your health bar will flash on screen for a moment and then disappear so it's not constantly in your face. You need to be careful about taking damage, though. Once you lose health, there is no way to get it back. There are no med kits or stim packs in the level, so you have to be mindful. Sometimes, though, you may come across body armor. If you find that, your body armor will take the damage instead of your health until the body armor is depleted and gone. Body armor health is represented by the blue health bar on the right side of your watch interface. Do what you can to find body armor and make sure that you are well protected. If you end up dying on a level, you'll have to play that level all over from the very beginning. Taking damage in and of itself can be pretty annoying too. I mean, aside from the obvious side effect of losing health, but you will actually be knocked back quite a ways when you take damage. It is almost as bad as being hit in Castlevania. While getting knocked back and Goldeneye won't force you off a ledge or anything, it will seriously disrupt you, especially if you're firing on an enemy or you're trying to line up that perfect shot. Aside from the general gameplay and how the game deals with health and damage, Goldeneye continues to see itself apart from other first person shooters when it comes to overall level design and just the missions themselves. While you can argue that most of the mission objectives are more or less the same in some of the levels, example, meet this person, interact with that terminal, find this item, etc., each mission has enough variety to make it its own thing, which keeps the overall experience relatively fresh for a uh, time. I appreciated almost every level I played through for what they were. For instance, I really liked the St. Petersburg street level. It's a simple concept, you just have to get from point A to point B and you only have a certain amount of time to do it. But you don't have to tromp all that way on foot. Just like in the movie, there's a nearby tank that you can commandeer and speed through the city streets. Controlling the tank was a bit of a pain in the ass for me, but nothing is more satisfying than running an enemy over. Aha, uh-huh, yeah, that will never get old. Does that make me a bad person? Yeah, probably, but anyway, I thought that level was a nice change of pace. I mentioned it before, but I really got a kick out of the frigate level. In this stage, on secret agent difficulty, there's two bombs on the ship that you need to defuse, a helicopter you need to throw a tracker on, and hostages that are scattered all throughout the ship being held at gunpoint that need rescuing. I learned pretty quick that going in guns blazing is a quick way to get those hostages killed, though. You come equipped with a silenced D5K submachine gun, and if you can keep your trigger finger in check, you can breeze through this level like a boss. I really enjoyed coming up to a room, crouching down, and getting an idea of where the enemies were in the room, if I could, before I entered. Once I made my way into the room, it was a quick tap to the head on each enemy, and voila! hostage rescued. Frigate is probably the one mission that I replay more often than the rest. I just enjoy it that much. While I'm talking about levels, I do want to complain about a couple. Mostly to see if you had any similar feelings and experiences in these stages, or to see if I just suck and I'm just being a big baby. So with that, let's talk about Bunker 2. So in the Bunker 2 stage, you've been taken prisoner. To escape your cell, you have to use your MI6-issued watch, which has a powerful enough magnet on it that it will let you pull the cell key that's hanging off the opposing wall right to you. That is a pretty cool concept, I thought, very 007-ish. Once you break out of your cell, you take out the guard with a well-placed melee attack or two and you're off. Now, in the cell next to you is Natalia, who you have to break free and escape with. No big deal, I thought. I sprung her out, she was super grateful, and I figured she'd show Bond her appreciation later. (laughs) Checking the mission objectives, we find that our goals are to escape with Natalia, compare staff slash casualty lists, which ultimately ended up being that we just needed to find one or two clipboard items, I think it was recover a CCTV videotape, and disable all security cameras. Now what usually ended up happening in this level is that I would engage one guard and they would be so close to another guard that I would end up shooting too much and then attracting a ton of resistance to my location. This area is a bunch of small, narrow corridors that all look alike, so I found myself being trapped by a bunch of guards, having to mow them down, and more and more would just rush to my location because I had to keep spraying them with bullets nonstop. If I did manage to keep moving, I would usually get surrounded by goons at either ends of the hallways that I was in, oh, and those security cameras would usually spot me if I wasn't paying attention. If the alarm sounds in this level, enemies with dual DD-44 handguns would come after me. And these assholes were much more accurate shots, did significantly more damage and took a lot more damage before they went down. Oh, and let's not forget Natalia. When she's running around with you, she loves standing in the middle of a room or hallway right in the line of fire. If she dies, which she did a ton for me, you will have to start this level over. When she dies, you get a prompt at the top of your screen and her dead body disappears. There was actually one mission where she got herself killed and I didn't notice the prompt. I couldn't find her anywhere either because her body had disappeared. I made it all the way to the end of the level thinking I had finally beat this beast. But unfortunately, I failed because somewhere along the way, she decided to screw me over by taking too many bullets to her face. I was so pissed. Eventually though, I did beat the level of course, but I did so by leaving Natalia locked in her cell so I could go about my mission without risking her dying. But yeah, fuck Bunker 2, I hated that level. The second level I wanted to bitch about was the Depot level. This mission, on paper, wasn't really all that hard. You're in a warehousing complex and you need to find and destroy a computer network, obtain a safe key, use said safe key to obtain helicopter blueprints, and then locate Alec Trevelyan's train. Simple, right? Well, this level takes place in the pitch-black darkness of night, and the enemies in this level are incredible shots. Because of the darkness, enemies that you can see normally at a distance clearly can be lost in the inky blackness, so I'd find myself taking damage and not having any idea where that damage came from. More than that, the enemies in this stage took a decent amount of damage before going down. I had a really hard time with this level. Oh, and one thing I thought was kind of odd. In this level, there are a decent amount of warehouses that you can enter and poke around in. Most of them have items like body armor or weapons, but I noticed if I searched more warehouses on my way to my objectives, more enemies seemed to spawn. In playthroughs where I just stuck to the objective path, there were not nearly as many enemies. Am I crazy or is that actually a thing? Someone please let me know. But in any case, this level wasn't as bad as Bunker 2 for me, but holy shit was it agitating. Still, once I completed each mission, I did feel pretty damn good and got a pretty good sense of accomplishment. So with that said, I don't think I really have much more to talk about when it comes to the gameplay. Goldeneye is one of those games you should experience for yourself and get to know the levels and nuances on your own. Playing through each stage for the first time and learning the layouts and figuring out your mission objectives is inherently fun. And I really felt like Bond as I was tromping through area after area while having that banger of a soundtrack pushing me along. But in my experience, after you play through a level once or multiple times if you keep dying, the magic sort of wears off for me. I'm not really sure how to explain it. There are plenty of reasons to replay some of the stages. One of the big draws of the game is completing levels on a certain difficulty within a certain amount of time. Basically, you're trying to speedrun a level using those fast and efficient methods Bond is known for, and that can certainly add some replay value to the overall experience. If you can accomplish some of those time-based missions, you'll start to unlock some awesome cheats that can change up the gameplay in some pretty fun, fun ways. Some examples of cheats are unlimited ammo, invincibility, times-two rocket launchers, tiny Bond mode, fast animations... You can even unlock exclusive weapons such as the Golden PP-7 or the Moonraker laser. One of my favorite cheats had to have been the paintball mode. When you shoot enemies or even walls, everything gets splattered in a different color paint. It really does look awesome for what it is, and I love how you have to earn these cheats too. You have to work at a level and try to find the most efficient way to finish it in order to hit the target time. It's very satisfying when you do hit that time and unlock something new to play with. Or there are the button combinations that you can press on the controller that have the same effects, but where's the fun in that? Other than features, there are two other levels that you can unlock by beating the game on certain difficulty settings. The level called Aztec is a bonus level that's based on the 1979 Bond film called Moonraker, and another bonus level called Egyptian. Egyptian isn't based on a specific Bond film per se, but the Egyptian ruins that you're in are very reminiscent of scenes from the movie The Spy Who Loved Me. In this level, you have to locate the Golden Gun and use it to defeat the villain called Baron Samedi. i probably butchered the shit out of that, but whatever. This level is sort of a pain in that the Golden Gun can only be accessed by solving a puzzle. On the ground, you have to make Bond travel over a certain path on the floor, but there's really no indication as to what that path is or how to figure that path out ahead of time. Instead, it's mainly trial and error. If you fuck it up and step on the wrong part of the floor, drone turrets will zero in on you and basically chase you out of the room so the puzzle resets. It's an interesting concept to be sure, but I did not have fun with this level, really. The last thing you can unlock, which I argue is the coolest thing, is 007 Difficulty. If you beat every level on the 00 Agent Difficulty, which is essentially hard mode, including the bonus Aztec and Egyptian levels, you gain access to 007 Difficulty. After you've put your blood, sweat, and tears into completing all missions on the hardest difficulty, 007 Difficulty allows you to manually adjust the health, enemy damage output, enemy accuracy, and enemy reaction time. Basically, you can make the levels as easy or as hard as you want and just have a chance to play God for a little bit. It's a pretty awesome reward for all of the hard work, even if the novelty doesn't last. Like I said, after just a single playthrough, I was pretty content with my time spent and really didn't care to keep pressing onwards. But to be fair, I was only really playing half of GoldenEye 007. You see, where the real magic of GoldenEye lies is with the multiplayer. Now, I struggled with the idea of actually doing an episode on GoldenEye for the podcast at all because I never played a multiplayer match from what I remember. I have no stories to share of times where my friends and I stayed up all night, no memories of wanting to punch my siblings in the teeth for using odd job, and no nostalgic ties whatsoever. So could I even talk about the multiplayer and do it any justice? Well, that's where you all came to my rescue. I put a call out to the Wildlands community and asked if any of you would be willing to share any of your multiplayer memories with me and I'd read them on the show. So we're going to finish up this episode by doing just that. So real quick, a multiplayer rundown. You can get up to four friends together on a single system and play split-screen against each other. GoldenEye Multiplayer comes equipped with a variety of game modes. You have your standard deathmatch, where it's everyone for themselves. There's also team battles as well, so you can pair up with your favorite best friend and try to kill your other best friends. There's the... You only live twice game mode, and just like the name implies, you only have two lives, and when those are gone, you are out. License to Kill is a game mode where all it takes is a single hit to kill or be killed. There was even a mode called The Man with the Golden Gun, where players would need to find the golden gun and get kills with it. And to add to the fun times, there's several cheats that you can unlock that will impact your multiplayer matches, such as paintball mode, no radar, turbo mode, and DK mode. DK mode is great because it makes characters have giant heads, big fat arms, and teeny tiny bodies. It is fantastic. There's a plethora of different match combinations and options to tweak, but nothing beats playing Goldeneye with your friends for hours and hours at a time. Now of all the options and modes that you can play with, Chuck over on our Facebook page is going to get the ball rolling with what he felt was the most important rule. He chimed in and said, Two words before every match. No odd job. I feel like that was the rule in pretty much every household. Oddjob is widely reviled, and there is much hatred for his diminutive stature. On the off chance you don't know the story behind Oddjob, let me regale you with what I recall. So Oddjob in the game is shorter than the rest of the characters, and while that's sort of an obvious reason why people don't like playing against him, the worst thing is what happens when players try and shoot him. The auto-aiming function works in multiplayer to allow players a decent chance of landing hits, but auto-aiming is almost useless against Oddjob because the center mass area that the gun aims towards is actually just over Oddjob's head. So really, the only way to damage him is to manually aim your gun. So with that said, it is widely agreed upon that Oddjob is off-limits. He basically breaks the game experience at that point, and if you decide to pick him, especially against the house rules, you're probably a disappointment to your parents and you most likely do not get invited to parties. Inner Demons, the Ghost Rider podcast, reached out on our Twitter page and talked about not only picking Job, but how they used to use him for all sorts of evil endeavors. They wrote in and said, I used to pick Job and crouch down. Then, to be funny, I'd hit the yellow strafe button the whole time and spin around like a maniac. I was so hard to hit and I would take out all my buddies while slapping. Hashtag ultimate insult. Oh, remind me to never play with you. That just sounds awful. But at the same time, picturing this just sounds freaking hilarious. I never crouched down all that often when I was playing through the single player missions, but when I did, it seemed like my movement speed wasn't really reduced all that much, so I can see this being a huge advantage for Oddjob. A crouching Oddjob is just the stuff of nightmares I can only imagine. If I had a brother or sister, this is something that I think I would absolutely do too, so no question. And speaking of sibling experiences, Chris over on our Facebook group shared a story that I think some of you listening might be able to relate to. He wrote in and said, I remember playing with Pat, that's Chris's brother, and we'd agreed to a truce so that we could look at each person's chosen character, especially Oddjob. Since he was so short, it was hilarious to compare size, and you had to pan all the way down to really see him well. Inevitably, we'd be comparing characters after a million assurances of a truce. Pat would kill me and laugh about it for five minutes, only to say, Now this time I promise I won't kill you if you come back by me. It's funny now, but boy was it infuriating back then. He'd kill you if you were on his team, even just for the rise of it all. Ugh, after reading that man, I have to wonder how the hell Pat is still alive. <laughs> At the very least, that is grounds for a medium-intensity beating, at least. Not only is it a betrayal of trust, but to be laughed at. Oh, Pat, if you happen to be listening to this, for shame. For shame, sir. (laughs) But regardless, that's a fun memory. I can only imagine how many siblings and friends just dicked each other over by doing the whole, Oh, come over here, I want to show you something gag. I vaguely remember doing something similar to my cousin Eric when him and I would play the battle mode in Super Mario Kart on the Super NES. Hold still, I want to see if I can hit you with this green shell from here. <laughs> ah, good times. And speaking of the sibling rivalries and friendly shenanigans, Ricky, who reached out to us over on Facebook, strikes me as the type to instigate a little bit of that. He wrote in about his GoldenEye memories and said running my mouth, then having everyone 3v1 me. Ha, I'm curious if you were able to back up your words or if your three pals fed you your lunch. Now that's something I used to do too. I would stack the odds against myself because I knew how good I was at the game and I couldn't keep my trap shut sometimes, but there were times that I would have to eat a nice slice of humble pie. I am curious which side of that coin fell for you most often, Ricky, so let me know, I'm curious. Now, if you can play the multiplayer legitimately and go toe-to-toe without being cheap or using trickery, I have to imagine the experience was pretty competitive. But I feel like there's always going to be that one sibling, or that one friend that has to find the exploit, has to find the easiest way to make your life a living hell. That's what happened to one of the hosts of the What the Famicom gaming podcast. They wrote into our Twitter and said, My brother would set up proximity mines at every respawn location so I would die instantly every match. I gotta say, that sounds really, really fucking awful. It's that sort of behavior that drove me out of multiplayer games like Call of Duty nowadays. To be subjected to that when you were younger and by your own flesh and blood? You have my condolences, seriously. Fuck, the more comments I read, the more I get the impression that a bunch of everybody's memories are just really painful and not full of as much joy as I thought. Is this why we remember multiplayer so much, because it hurts you all so much? Inner Demons is going to have the last story here, and I have to say, this might be the most tragic. He wrote in and said, Iconic game. One time a friend and I played Temple with rockets, but I asked his little sister to play around to be nice. She didn't know how to play, and I was helping her, but I remember seeing her character get rocket blasted from above by her competitor brother, and I was like, "No!" (laughs) See? Even when you try and do something nice, GoldenEye's multiplayer just seems to bring out all the evil in us. You know, now that I think about it, maybe it's a good thing that I haven't played any GoldenEye multiplayer. I feel like everyone here is wrestling with some pretty intense demons. But all jokes aside, the whole experience is certainly something special, and that's why it's most remembered. Sure, there's plenty of ways to game with other people nowadays, but there was something magical about just playing with your friends or family in the same room together and just screwing around and having a good time. You cannot put a price on that. I am curious if the game being made available on the Xbox and Switch will produce some new memories for people. Time will tell, it seems. I want to extend a huge thank you to everyone who took the time to share some of your GoldenEye multiplayer memories with me so I could share them with the rest of the world. I really appreciate you all letting me be a part of that. If for some stupid reason you left me a comment about the multiplayer experience and I missed it and didn't read it on the show, please reach out to me directly. I don't think I missed anyone, but, you know, just in case. I am just one man after all. So, when you wrap it all up, Goldeneye will go down in history as one of the most influential games of all time, but also one of the most unique. While Goldeneye was used as a stepping stone for other titles in the first-person shooter space, and while some may argue the game itself hasn't really aged all that well, you cannot deny the passion that the developers put into this game. Sometimes it's enough to just take up arms and blow the shit out of everything in your way, and that's just fine. But Rare and that development staff really had a vision for what they wanted to achieve. For me as a gamer, one of the things that I love most about video games is that the good ones remove you from your everyday lives and put you in the shoes of somebody else or puts you in a brand new experience that's separate from your everyday to day. You get to experience new things, and you really feel like you're a part of another world in the process. It really takes a special game to make a person feel that way, and I argue Goldeneye does just that. When the music starts, the level fades in, and you see the world through the eyes of James Bond, you aren't just occupying a vessel. You are James Bond. You're outwitting the enemy, you're taking out the bad guys, and you're the one saving the world. If a game can make you smirk while you're playing it and it continues to pull you into the experience, you know you've got a great game on your hands no matter how old or unpolished it is and Goldeneye 007 is one such game. That marks the end of episode 29 of the Retro Wildlands, GoldenEye 007 for the Nintendo 64. Thank you all very much for taking the time to listen to the show today. I really appreciate you all being here with us. I had a fantastic time finally playing through GoldenEye after so many years. And while I wish I could have played the game natively on the Nintendo 64 and spent a little bit more time on the multiplayer aspect of the game, I really enjoyed what I played, and I loved taking the time to just get good at some of the missions to the point I could earn some of the unlockable cheats. I really was pleasantly surprised by this game, and while I don't think the game has really aged all that well, GoldenEye is very playable today with its objective-based campaign structure and content-rich multiplayer which will ensure that this game remains playable and enjoyable for many, many more years to come. The control scheme on the Xbox is wonderful, and it makes what I'm sure is a cumbersome experience on the N64 much more manageable. I am sure at some point I'll get this game on the Switch and give online multiplayer a try, so I'll be able to see firsthand how that control scheme holds up and how the online experience is. I will report back at a later time, fellow agents. So with all that said, if you liked the show today and want to show it and myself some support, there are a bunch of ways you can do that. First, please consider leaving us a good review on your podcast service of choice if you are able. As we get more good reviews, the show should circulate a bit more and get itself in the hands of a couple more people. Also, consider subscribing or following us on your platform as well. This way you can be notified as soon as I drop new episodes. And if you really like the show and aren't embarrassed to tell your friends about us, please do that. Better yet, if you're ever at a dance competition for your kid like I was this past weekend, you can use the Retro Wildlands to strike up a conversation with all the people sitting around waiting for hours just to see their kid perform for two minutes. We can help kill boredom for so many people by suggesting a mediocre podcast like the Retro Wildlands. (laughs) I do enjoy going to dance competitions to see my girl perform, I will say. Don't get me wrong. Shout out to my peanut Cameron. You are a dancing beast on the dance floor, sweetheart. So, what's coming up next week? I'm 99% sure I'm going to cover Super Smash TV for the Super Nintendo on the show next week since I've teased it for a couple shows in a row now. I've been putting some decent time into this game over the last few weeks, and I'm ready to talk about it. The week after that, I'll be away from my adult job and out of state, so the plan for that episode is to talk about Parasite Eve 2. I have a video review script already written up for a video review that I never did finish, so to save myself some time, I'm going to rework that into a podcasting episode and get that worked up so you'll have something to listen to while I'm away. Now don't get me wrong, this is not a throwaway episode. I played the shit out of Parasite Eve 2 when I was a kid, and I replayed it a few times several months ago. I have a lot to say about this game, and I'm really curious what you all think about PE2. Some players love it, others hate it. Me, as a lover of the Parasite Eve franchise as a whole, I kinda have a love-hate relationship with this game, to be completely honest. But I'll be getting into all that in just a couple weeks. I would be absolutely honored and humbled to have you with us on our Wildlands expedition as we keep moving forward. The best part about the whole journey is discovering and rediscovering all sorts of video games, and nothing makes that experience better than having some good people taking the ride along with you. So never forget that you always have a place here with us. Until then my friends, my name is Nomad and you can find me... Roaming the Retro Wildlands